good afternoon to all of you. <clears throat> We're still meeting remotely by telephone, but our our sickos are slowly getting better, and I hope that we can get past all that and be meeting again in the hall. But even then, some still have to tune in by telephone, and I'm sometimes frustrated by a lot of the modern technology, but on the other hand, it can certainly be a, a boon and a help. I'm sitting here at the moment in the sunshine looking at the snow-capped peaks of Colorado and can speak to you over the telephone. What an amazing thing. On the world scene, uh, it, it seems things are heating up very rapidly. I keep seeing little clips here and there that they're both Russia and the U.S. are talking about a war maybe starting in the Ukraine as early as the middle of this coming week. Some have even stated Wednesday, and they're getting all of the personnel out of our embassy in Kiev and Ukraine, and uh, Great Britain was told to get their people out of there. So who knows? We, we hear this and we hear that. One of these days, it's going to happen. <laughs> and how fast it will spread from there to where remains to be seen, of course. And this truckers thing is getting bigger and bigger, and Trudeau in Canada already is threatening to turn police, state police, and perhaps the UN uh, onto the truckers to try to stop that. And in the U.S., they're thinking of doing the same thing. And if the truckers do truly go on strike more than just a little weekend demonstration, it wouldn't be but a few days until people would be starting to get hungry without food in the grocery stores and and society would break down very rapidly. So things look <clears throat> fairly peaceful right at the moment because it hasn't really started. We've got all the buildup here and the troubles have started with COVID and so on, but it hasn't gotten completely out of hand to civil war and World War yet, but I don't think it's far away. So these prophecies we've been reading about are very soon to come to pass. Now last week we <clears throat> finished at the end of Zechariah 6, having gone through, well, all the minor prophets up to here, but particularly here recently, Haggai showing that God is going to stir a 10% remnant to come and to build in his temple, to take care of that job and to build Jerusalem as well as uh, Daniel clearly shows in chapter 9 uh, that Jerusalem has to be built and it has to be done within a 70 week period and then uh, the altar defiled so the temple and Jerusalem both have to be built and starting soon so last week we went through having gone through what God is going to do with the remnant and how he's going to appoint leadership in chapters 3 through 6, how he sent worldwide packing in chapter 5 back into Babylon with two unclean, spiritually unclean birds, the Tkachis, to set uh, his face back in Babylon in the middle of Protestantism and confusion, and worldwide, of course, has died. It no longer really exists. So it's the church that died, and only a few names remain from worldwide. So chapter 5 is about that, and then we go in and see 
war and famine at the beginning of chapter 6. And that beginning to quiet God's spirit because it begins to diminish his wrath as the battles go on and his purposes are worked out. Then at the end of that, he shows again that he's going to bless the leadership of not more than two people, but the leadership of the remnant people and how it is upon all of us to diligently obey him because that's the kind of people he's going to need to do his final work and to build the latter temple. When we get to the end of that and come to seven where we are today, and it continues the story that we've been going through in these last chapters. Uh, it doesn't turn to a completely different subject, but it's still discussing this end-time church and what needs to be done, what God tells us we need to do. So there's a lot of instruction and there's a lot of encouragement in the next two or three chapters. So we need to get into that. Now, chapter 7 opens by saying it came to pass in the fourth year of Darius that the word of the eternal came to Zechariah in the fourth day of the ninth month. That would be the beginning of December, generally, uh, in our today's calendar. Now, remember that when the 70 years were complete in Daniel, Daniel prayed a prayer because he had read in Jeremiah about a 70-year captivity. And Daniel is a closed book, closed up until the end. Therefore, the 70 years that are prophesied there and that Christ mentions, not by, not by the 70, but in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, where he talks about uh, Daniel and what Daniel had to say, and he's talking there uh, of the end times and about the end coming. So Daniel is indeed speaking of a 70 years that would have to do with us, and the prophecy of Jeremiah of a 70-year captivity wasn't just a historical thing. It is for us today. And... He will mention it here in chapter 7 again, as he did in Zechariah 1. Zechariah 1, I want to turn back and review that just briefly, so we're cognizant of that as we go into chapter 7. And here he says the earth is basically at rest, and the war horses were not at work quite yet, and they don't go to work until chapter 6. But the question is asked here in verse 12, but how long will it be before you don't show, until you show mercy on Jerusalem? Speaking of the church, Hebrews 12, 22 and 23 again, uh, where he shows that Zion and Jerusalem and Israel and the church, all worshiping Christ, are one and the same. So it gives us a clue right there that the prophecies are geared to the church. Then they have a secondary fulfillment with the nations. So here, in Zechariah, he applies that 70 years here in verse 12. How long before you show mercy and you've had this indignation for 70 years? Now, I dated that back uh, in terms of Jeremiah's relationship or his, uh, the things that he wrote, uh, he was referring 
then specifically to the 70 years where Judah would be carried into Babylon and uh, the siege of Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the killing of Gedaliah, those fasts were carried out and Jeremiah made it clear that it was a long captivity. There was a false prophet there at the same time who said it would be a short captivity. But he was struck dead, and Jeremiah's prophecy came to pass. And Daniel counted up the seventy and knew when it was over. So he said, I knew by numbers in reading Jeremiah that it was over. And then he prayed a very imploring prayer to God about uh, deliverance at the end of seventy years. And we know that historically then, the setting there was in the second year of Darius, as is uh, the time that Haggai spoke, was in the second year of Darius, who had taken over from the Babylonians in the Persian Empire. Persian, I said the wrong thing, didn't I? Uh, I guess it was Persian. At any rate, uh, we have to relate that story to the end times and here to the end times church. And it confused me for a long time as to just how that would apply until uh, I began to realize that what Jeremiah was saying was actually happening in the church. Because a lot of the meat of his prophecy had to do with it's a long captivity, go out and build houses in Babylon just as if you were going to be there. In 70 years is really quite a long time, about the average lifespan of the human being, so it's a, a long time. So they weren't just to sit there uh, waiting for that to end. They were to be busy going ahead with life and building. So I began to equate that to what Herbert Armstrong had done. And his experience, we've been over this several times, but here I want to review it because we're again going to discuss the 70 years in chapter 7. And that is that his experience in Oregon was that he could go out and do a little evangelistic campaign or tent rival or uh, revival or whatever you wanted to call it, and people would be interested. And they'd say, oh, we want to do that, and I agree with you. And then he would go back home, and those little groups would fall apart because they had no shepherd to lead them and help them and encourage and guide them. Uh, and that happens to people who don't have some leadership. We've seen it happening here over these last decades when we've been in confusion in the entire church. When we're home alone with no one to meet with and to encourage one another, iron sharpening iron and so on, it's hard to grow, and we tend to drift backwards slowly. Um, so we need each other, and that's why Paul described the church as a body, and all the parts need to fit together, and they need to complement each other and help each other to accomplish what the body needs to do. So we're going to go back to that out of this confusion when God calls a remnant together, gives it the proper leadership, and then directs it to do the work that needs to be done. That is just ahead of us. The 70 years, I equate, and I think this fits, 
to Herbert Armstrong starting the college in 1947. I would have been in the fall, probably end of August, first of September, somewhere along there. And his reason for starting the college, he stated many times, and that was so he could train a ministry and have people to go out and shepherd the flocks, to build church houses, if you will, uh, a house for God, a temple for God. Our bodies, of course, are the temple of God's Spirit. But we also have to have, as they did in the early New Testament church, local congregations with pastors over them, as they did then, Timothy and others, uh, in order for people to be fed and to grow. And Mr. Armstrong realized from his experiences the work wasn't going anywhere until he sent people out into Babylon, if you will, New York, Chicago, Miami, Lincoln, Nebraska, San Francisco, London, wherever. Uh, we needed local churches in order to help in the growth uh, situation. So he set out to train ministers in the fall of 47. And if you begin a 70-year period then, it ends up uh, in August or September of 2017. That happens to coincide with the 430 years since it was a, a, a colony that was successful here in this country, in Roanoke, Virginia. 430 years later, uh, we come to the fall of 2017, and I do believe that fits exactly Ezekiel laying on his side 390 days for Israel and 40 days for uh, Judah, and God makes it very clear right there in Ezekiel that each day represented a year. So he set up a 430-year prophecy about Israel and Judah. And that has to be fulfilled at some point. And there's no period you can point to since then, up to Christ's time or since then, in which there was a 430-year period of time until this one. And I do believe God's reasoning, his logic, his thought, was that he sent us into Egypt or Mitzrium for 430 years, and he makes it a very important point, that they came out on time. Now, he made that, in some places referred to as 400 years, in general, as a rounded off, and in another place he calls it exactly 430 years. Well, then Ezekiel, coming along thousands of years later, had a prophecy about 430 years for Israel and Judah. Combine the two in that prophecy. And then as you go on through chapter, the next chapters to chapter 8, he says that once the 430 is done, there will be a short period of time until the death and destruction and the prophecies of Ezekiel 5 come down on the nation. And Daniel uh, began to see all this, and then they began to prepare to get permission and go to build a temple and to build Jerusalem, 
And that took several years. <coughs> Third year of uh, Darius. And Haggai wrote his in the second year of Darius. Uh, Zechariah began his prophecy in the eighth month of the second year of Darius. And then he moves forward to the fourth year of Darius here in the beginning of chapter 7. So Daniel, Jeremiah, Haggai, uh, you can include Ezra and Nehemiah, show that after those periods of time were uh, formally reached, there was then a period of grace or a period of preparation before things went forward. And Ezekiel makes it clear that it is a short period of time and won't be like the sounding again of the mountains or like an echo, such as we've been hearing since uh, the prophecies of 1972 and 1975 and 1982 and whatever numbers people have picked out. Now we're getting very near the end of that, and I think that the 4.30 and the 70 show that. There are other signs that that was a period of time. And Amos 8 comes into play where it says a, an eclipse would go over the nation from one end to the other at noon, and it would become dark at noonday. And that happened in August of 2017 as well. So we have the 70 years coming to a completion, the 430 completing, and an eclipse showing at that same time frame. And he shows that from God passing judgment when that eclipse goes over, but from then and forward would come a lot of death and destruction. And just like the other two prophecies, it's been a while since then, been over four years now, and preparations have been being made. The COVID broke out at the end of about 65 years from 1954, when the Bilderberger conspiracy had their first meeting, and Isaiah 7 shows that about 65 years after that, uh, Ephraim would become so confused and frustrated and upside down we wouldn't know which end was up. And that began at the end of 2019, about 65 years after that prophecy in Isaiah 7. So we have four signs in the road that all point to now being just about the time that it all breaks loose. And as we look around, that appears to be happening uh, with the USA and Russia throwing epithets at each other and threatening war at any moment. Uh, and that's going to lead to further strife, and we're going to have civil war in this country. Jeremiah 50 through 51 make that very clear. It will be civil war, rumor against rumor, and violence in the land. And we are also getting very close to that happening as this political thing gets stronger and stronger and over COVID. So everything is backing up. So with that background again explained, let's go back to Zechariah 7. And as we leave, we're going to get down again to the 70 years. That's the reason I spent some more time on this. Anyway, this is the fourth year of Darius. So four years after the Babylonian captivity was formally over and some things were still happening, 
And all of this in Zechariah 1 through 6 is a lead-up to all these biblical prophecies coming to pass. So he has more to say about it here in chapter 7, and it hasn't all broken loose at the time of the fourth year. So, when they had come sent unto the house of God, I'm having trouble reading here, uh, Sherezer and Regimelech and their men to pray before the eternal. So, he tells us here that there's a remnant coming and that his branch, his leader, will be revealed up here in chapter 6. And the two leaders will see eye to eye when God turns it around, as is clearly stated in chapter uh, 3 of Zechariah, signs and wonders will come, and then the branch will be revealed, the ultimate leader. Isaiah 58 does the same thing, says that they will see eye to eye when God turns his face again to his remnant church. So it's very clear when this is going to happen. And the church around the world will be able to see the signs and wonders that God does. It will be healings people will see and hear and walk that are not being seen, seeing and hearing and walking. And that will get the attention of the church and 10% will come to build the temple. So that's what he's referring to here. And these men were sent to pray before the eternal. Even as I tell you, we need to go and speak to the eternal. We need to be in close contact, close commune, building our relationship with the Father and the Son. Because closeness to God is, if it ever has been in the history of mankind, mankind imperative at this time. Because this is where all the prophecies are going to crescendo to the climax. And it is going to be the worst period of time that the world has ever known. And that no flesh would be saved alive unless God intervenes at the last moment. And even the very elect would be deceived if it were possible. So a strong delusion is about to come on mankind through Satan and the beast and false prophet. And they're going to be deceived by it. And are being deceived already by Pharmacaea and beginning to take the mark of the beast and not being able to buy and sell or travel very soon now, and already restrictions are in place in some places. So it's upon us, and it's getting tighter and tighter day by day until it is finally fulfilled. So we're in it. So it's a time to speak to the eternal of hosts and to the prophets, uh, saying... Should I weep in the fifth month, separating myself as I have done these so many years? And we're going to see that it's seventy years. Then came the word of the eternal host to me, saying, Speak to all the people of the land and to the priests, saying, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh uh, month, even those seventy years, did you at all uh, fast? to me, even to me. So he's still referring to the 70 years of captivity that they went through, and remember at the time they instituted four fasts. 
The first one being about the siege against Jerusalem. The second being about, I think it was the destruction of Jerusalem. And then the third, the burning of the temple. And then the fourth, uh, Gedaliah being murdered, who was the one who was left as the leader. And we have been going through those things again here these 70 years. And we have seen the siege against the church. You might be able to equate that to the beginning of the rebellion of the ministry in as early as 72. The state of California coming in and trying to take over the church in 79. So there indeed was a siege against the church. And then we saw uh, Jerusalem, the church, fall. And we saw the temple destroyed. Whether it be the buildings in Pasadena or the lives of the people who were in the church who had their uh, personal temples torn down, spiritual temples, through the spiritual war and famine and pestilence that came on the church and has left us devastated with only about 10% remaining who will be faithful. So we have been experiencing, experiencing these very same things that those people were fasting about during that literal captivity uh, in this 70 years since Herbert Armstrong began the college and we began to build houses in Babylon. And then those houses in Babylon have been torn down. There isn't much left. So, when he refers to the 70 years in Zechariah 1, in reference to when God will bless Jerusalem again, it is very much in the context of Haggai and Zechariah, the two witnesses and the faithful remnant. That's the context of the 70 years. So then he talks about the leadership and all of us diligently obeying and that he's in a positive mood about this. He leaves some contingency on you and me to diligently obey him. At the same time, he expects fully that this will happen. So he goes on to say the crowns will be passed out. And if you go to Revelation 2 and 3, it says to anyone who overcomes they will receive a crown of life, and he describes the crowns in different ways. <coughs> so God is being very positive about this and expects it to happen. And in fact, we went over a scripture not too long ago. Was it in Hosea, Hosea or Amos? I don't remember for sure. But it said toward the end of one of those books, You will seek me early. In other words, as these things begin to truly come to pass, people will begin to truly get serious about all this and seek God in a way that we have not sought Him heretofore. And he addresses that here in chapter 7. When he fasts, he says, When you fasted during this time, who were you fasting for? Was your fast toward me, or was it fasting for yourself? And the one that we go to normally on this is Isaiah 28. And I think I'll put that back there for a moment to show what we have tended to do. Uh, people usually fast when they need something. 
when they have a trial, a trouble, a sickness, a death in a family, or whatever, uh, where we feel the pressure ourselves is when we tend to fast. A spiritual problem we might have, we have various reasons why we would decide to fast. But God talks about it here very clearly in uh, chapter 28. He calls us the drunkens of Ephraim. That is, <laughs> drunken in a spiritual sense. We stagger around in confusion and have been now for several decades since Herbert Armstrong was killed. And I do believe he was killed even as Gedaliah was killed. So there's your fourth fast. Uh, in this era of time, when the rumors are pretty persistent that Herbert Armstrong was smothered with a pillow. So he may have been murdered even as Gedaliah was. So all four elements of the fast that the Jews have kept are included here in the 70 years since 1947 and continuing to this day. So God is referring to those that 70 years being completed, and he's coming through Zechariah to say, now you fasted through these years, and we truly should have been all those years. But some of us, and there are others I'm sure who have, uh, not just this little group, but others who have recognized that we should be keeping those fasts that the Jews kept that are included in an end-time book of Zechariah, because these prophecies are written specifically to us today as end-time books. So we should have been keeping them, and this little group has been keeping them now for, what, 10 or 12 years, I don't remember, maybe a little longer than that even. But we've prayed about all these things of the rebellion in the state of California and the church coming apart. Herbert Armstrong being killed and the church led right back into Babylon. And we have been in utter confusion. So God says, did you fast to me? Or were you fasting for yourselves? And he says down here, that, uh, oh, I'm at 28, I'm at 58. What was I doing? Uh, he says, verse 6, here's the fast I've chosen. You fasted for self. And then he says, I've caused you to fast to loose the bands of wickedness, to uh, make the heavy burdens, or to lift the heavy burdens, I guess, and to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. And that we're not to be thinking of ourselves, but of dealing our bread to the hungry and taking care of others, not just ourselves. And he says, if you get your mind on others, loving God and loving your neighbor, the first two commandments, that's what he's talking about here. If we'll get our minds on doing that, then our light will break forth as the morning and our health will spring forth speedily and our righteousness shall go before us. The glory of the eternal shall be our rear guard. We'll go forward, and he will be backing us up. Now, we're going to read that here in Zechariah shortly in different words, but the same concept, that if we keep these fasts and we do it in the right manner with the right attitude, it isn't going to be long until God breaks forth with love and kindness and blessing 
instead of confusion and spewing and spitting and the sputtering and confusion we've been going through. And he says in verse 9, Then shall ye call, and the Lord shall answer, and you shall cry, and he shall say, Here I am. Now, a lot of people have been doing a lot of praying and some fasting in these years since, particularly 1986 when Herbert Armstrong died, and it's like we're praying to a blank wall. God hears not sinners. And he's not been paying a whole lot of attention to our prayers because we are supposed to be in a repenting situation since he blew the church apart and supposed to be coming to having the attitude that he's talking about right here instead of every man for himself and every group for itself. We should be trying to help others. And he says then in 10, if you draw out your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, and that could be physical, it could also certainly be spiritual. Then shall your light rise in obscurity, and your darkness be as the noonday. I'll satisfy your soul in drought, and make back your bones, and you shall be like a watered garden, and like a spring of water, whose waters fail not. And he combines that with Haggai and Zechariah here about how he's going to rebuild. Notice it. And they that shall be of you, the ones that repent and get the right attitude of love toward God and man, those that be of you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. And he says Jerusalem has been desolate for many generations, the true Jerusalem. And that is indeed true, if you know where it is. And even the church has been dead for many generations. Through the Middle Ages and up until Herbert Armstrong began to be called in 1926 and 7. So spiritual Jerusalem was in disrepair, and so was physical Jerusalem for many generations. And now... The church is going to be revived in a way that it has not been since Christ started with the apostles. And even beyond that, I do believe. You'll be known as the repairs of the breach and the restorer of paths to dwell in. Doesn't he say that the Elijah figure at the end time will restore the truth, restore all things, restore the paths to dwell in? That's what it's all about. And then he says, we have to take our foot off his Sabbath if this is to happen. We have to come to keep it in the way that he intended, not just have 24 hours of doing nothing. What does he say about the Sabbath? A great deal in this one verse about how it ought to be kept in order to get our foot off of it. We might keep it in name, but are we keeping it in spirit? So what does he say? If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, so we're not to be doing our pleasures. We're not to be playing golf or going uh, on a fishing trip or to be doing uh, the things that people do, watching TV, listening to worldly music, 
our own pleasures, in other words. Stop those on your holy day and call the Sabbath a delight. So there's an attitude. We have to delight in the Sabbath. It's not something that just comes and goes and we cease from certain things, but our delight is in God. He is overarching in everything to be given glory and honor and love and thanksgiving and hallelujah to his name. So if we delight in those things in worshiping him, the Sabbath is set aside for that delight. He says six days shall you labor and do all your thing, your work, even your pleasures, your downtime, your recreation time, your work and your play, uh, during those six days, but the seventh is set aside to be a delight in worshiping God. The holy of the eternal, honorable, and shall honor him. So it's a day to spend honoring and delighting, honoring God and delighting in him. And not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasures, nor speaking your own words even. And sometimes I think we, we defile the Sabbath that way. It's easy to let our conversations go to the mundane, everyday things that we think about on the other six days we'll sit and talk about on the Sabbath. It's a day to talk more about God. It might be a day more to talk about the sermon, to talk about lessons we've learned, to think about, to talk about something we might have learned from Scripture or personal lessons we might have learned. Are we too self-centered? Are we too embarrassed? Are we too private to let our lives entwine and to sharpen each other? Or do we just talk about the weather and talk about whatever of the week? Now, God did work through the week of creation, and he rested on the Sabbath, and he did look back and reflect on what he had done that week and saw that it was very good. So I don't think it's wrong for us to look back on the past week, uh, think about how well we did in terms of doing things God's way, God's way, how we worked, how we played. Was it all in accord with his word? Did we have a very good week? Or did we have a week where we need to work on it more next week? So the Sabbath, the seventh day, the last day of the week, can be used to some degree to reflect on the first six days. Now that doesn't mean that you get your mind on business or your work or whatever that you do during the week and, and think about those but just maybe to assess them. Were they done according to God's way? That's what the Sabbath is for. And he looked back and said, yes, I had a very good week. I reformed things. I made man. I, I, I did a lot of good work. And I hope that we can look back on our week and say, yeah, that was a good week. Now I want to make next week even better. And part of our delight and honoring and obedience and worship and prayer 
and Bible study on the Sabbath should be to gear us up for the week that is about to come, to get us ready for it, in spirit and in attitude. And if we're not doing those things on the Sabbath, we're still walking on it. Because he doesn't say, just don't do this, don't do that. He tells us what we are to do. And he sums it up right here in this one verse, that a lot of the time on the Sabbath ought to be spent thinking of and praying to him and considering his words and worshiping God and honoring him on the Sabbath. So those are a contrast. We have sins of omission and sins of commission. And he tells us to omit certain things, and he commissions us to do other things on the Sabbath. So we need to reflect on this verse a lot and say, am I fulfilling the part that once God wants me to do in a positive way as opposed to not just doing those things that I like to do? So we need to get our foot, our mind, our spirit off God's Sabbath and get our minds on Him. And our conversations, frankly, should reflect that more than they do. And we need to think about that. You know, it takes some effort to pray, to meditate, to study, to think on the things of God. And it takes some effort to bring them into your conversation. Now there, there are things we need to be aware of as well. Uh, People have a tendency to brag about their prayer, to brag about their Bible study, uh, and to sound the trumpet over those things. And he tells us, when you pray, go into your closet, no one knows you're there, and you don't come out and brag beamingly that you just prayed. Uh, it's a private thing between you and God. So what I'm saying here doesn't mean we ought to have conversations where we all sit and brag about how much we prayed or studied. What we could converse about <laughs> might be the fruit of that prayer and study. We could talk about lessons that we might personally have learned, things we might have gone through, uh, scriptures that we read and that had a special meaning for us that week, whatever it might be. We need to tend to honor and to talk about God more than I think we do. So it's a matter of not just do not, but it's a matter also of do. And be sure he gets the honor and the glory on the Sabbath that he deserves. So that's what fasting is all about, is to love our neighbors ourselves and to honor and to glorify God so that he might use us here in the end time as healers of the breach, as restoring the paths to walk in. And that's what he's talking about here in chapter 7. <laughs> he gives us all these clues and instruction as to what leadership he's going to uh, give, who is going to come and build, and then here he begins to give us some instruction on how to go about this. So let's go on down with it here. Uh, he says, listen to the former prophets and uh, the way things were, when things were good and men were 
here and out on the plain and inhabit the south and the plain and so on, uh, when things were good. And as I look back, I can remember when things were better than they are today. I remember the 50s and the 60s when God was doing more healings, when he was revealing more truths more quickly than he did in the 70s, 80s, 90s. And in fact, during that period of time, he wasn't revealing more truths. Truths were being taken away instead. So we've been through a very, very tough time. And he wants us to remember, hey, things used to be better. You need to get it back that way and even more so than it was in the 50s and 60s, which is, I think, the period of the spiritual time and worldwide that was at its highest level spiritually. God seemed to be doing more, and the growth was coming very, very rapidly. The healings were more frequent, and into the 70s and 80s, that diminished, and rebellions occurred, and all kinds of problems. <laughs> and doctrine committees who were <coughs> sending the ministry to Fuller Seminary to learn Protestantism. And it all started going downhill. So God goes, says, go back to the way it was when it was at its best and do even better because there are going to be old men around there in Haggai who saw it when it was at its best. And they're going to say the latter temple that is about to be built is going to be greater than worldwide was ever, even at its best. That's what we are under the gun to accomplish. To get closer to God than we ever have been before. To do a greater work than has ever been done before to the whole world. And he's just addressed who will do that. The two witnesses and the other witnesses of the remnant who will be in Zion and the gospel will go out from there. As Jeremiah makes very clear, I think it's in Jeremiah 31, from Ephraim and from Mount Zion. And this is Ephraim, and Mount Zion is in the U.S., not in the Middle East. So, he says, you've got work to do. You've got to diligently obey, and you've got to be close to me and get things better than they've ever been here in the end time. This is not a time to relax and rest on our oars. This is a time to be paddling away. So, verse 8, the word of the eternal came to Zechariah, saying, Thus speaks the eternal of hosts. He's going to give us some instruction here. Same kind of instruction he gave in Isaiah 58. We just went over. Thus speaks the eternal of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment, and show mercy and compassion every man to his brother. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's all he's saying. That's all he's ever said. Love God more than anything, and love your neighbor as much as you do yourself. Be taking care of your neighbor as you take care of yourself. We can take care of each other physically and to some degree spiritually, maybe during the week with encouragement. And on the Sabbath, it should be more of a spiritual encouragement, not just physical. 
So, true judgment, truth, not lies, the truth, and show mercy on each other. Is that what we do? Sometimes we cut each other to pieces. Sometimes we put each other down. Sometimes we are not in God's attitude and His mindset. He is a God of love and mercy and kindness and patience. Those are His spirits, or His fruits. What are our fruits? Well, these are some, obviously, we need to be working on because He's bringing them up here to those who will build the latter temple. And heal the breaches, as Isaiah 58 says. Compassions every man to his brother. Give them room. Give them help. Give them space. Give them patience. <clears throat> Not only then do you give these, but you then you have a list of helpers. Oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, the stranger, nor the poor. That's what the Pharisees tended to do, as Christ excoriated them for doing so when he was here. And it's what he gets after the church about, because we don't take care of them. And I remember some imbalance there, just as one example that just comes to mind, is that the ministry, when we went to the Feast of Tabernacles, were given the finest uh, motel or the finest facility, whatever it was, at the feast site. And they had a bar set up, and they had all the fine food. They used second tithe that was turned into the church, excess second tithe. And the ministers were really well taken care of. And the widows and the orphans had to apply for second tithe help. And they had to fill out a form and do all kinds of things, maybe with the local pastor, and then they would be given a certain amount to keep the feast. And it was certainly a hamburger and cheap beer menu. And it was the lowest of the motels that were even suitable to stay in, where the ministers had the finest. And that was just so wrong. If anything, the widows and the strangers and the orphans should have had the better and the ministry could have had some a little less. Now, if you're going to really do it right, they should have all had at least the same. And not some have better than others. And the second tithe should have been spent a whole lot more equitably than it was. And that was something that was wrong. Dead wrong. In Worldwide Church of God. And I watched it and experienced it. And it bothered me to one degree or another. I had to go out and talk to those widows and tell them what facility they were going to live in and tell them how much money they'd get from Pasadena, and it wasn't much. And it, it was a sad job to have to do, knowing that I was going to go and stay in a nice facility and have an open bar with free drinks and be eat steak if I wanted to. No. God saying you got to do better, brethren. We have to do better. Well, press not the fatherless, the stranger, and the poor. And let none of you imagine evil against this brother in your heart. What is one of the things that is the fruit of the flesh? Evil imaginations. 
You know, that is one of the very common sins that mankind perpetrates on anybody else, and that is to imagine evil about them. We see somebody doing something, or think they're doing something, or we suspect they're doing something, and our evil little minds will turn it into sin. I remember someone looking out his back window at my place, here where we live, and saw me, who was single at the time, and a single lady, who was single at the time, out feeding the goats. And he said to people, I looked out my back window and saw sin. Now, feeding goats is not a sin. Two people, male and female, feeding goats is not a sin. Fornication is a sin. Adultery is a sin. Lying or thieving are sins. He didn't see any of those. He saw two people there and imagined what they were doing somewhere else. He was wrong. But he was convinced that that was going on because he saw seeing goats together. That is evil imagination. When you see something and you suspect more, and you turn and imagine sin, what right do you have to imagine sins in other people? They answered to God. If they were sinning in some way, I use that one example. I can think of a hundred if you want me to. We can be here the rest of the day. I, I won't have any trouble coming up with people who have accused just me of murder, of grand auto theft, of all kinds of things. I've been accused of adultery, fornication. I've been accused of all those things. And I wasn't doing them. got accused of it. Well, they came part of it because they saw my truck parked in front of a single woman's house. And it was there all night. <clears throat> Therefore, evil imaginations occurred. And I, since my truck was there, I have, I had to have been there also. And I had to have been fornicating because I was there. You see how the mind goes? and comes to its conclusions of sin when they actually saw nothing there. Yes, my truck was there all night. It was there in a few cases two or three times, two or three nights, in a row. I wonder why my wife wasn't wondering where I was. No, the truck had been borrowed to move furniture, or whatever at the time, and having been borrowed was left there the people decided to turn it into sin. I've used this example before, but I've left that same truck at Nelson's house, and nobody imagined that Nelson and I were having an affair. Maybe somebody did, I don't know, never heard it. But it would have been evil imaginations just as much as it would have been with someone else. So God says, there's no room for that. That is a fruit of the flesh, not of the spirit. And when people imagine sin, they're doing the wrong thing. 
what are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be taking care of the widow and the orphan and the stranger and glorifying and honoring God and being patient and merciful and kind to one another rather than tearing apart them into bits and pieces in our own minds. Whether you say it or not, the gossip occurs within your own head. And God's saying we haven't done a good enough job of that in this end-time church. But that still exists, and it has to be gotten rid of. So this is instruction to you and me as the end-time church. He's telling us you have sinned in doing these things. You weren't being kind and merciful and showing judgment and saying, well, okay, I see things that are circumstantial, but that doesn't mean there's sin going on. You've seen examples of this in your own life and the lives of your neighbors, of how accusations have been made which were not true. This goes all the way back to the beginning of mankind. Adam and Eve accused each other, accused Satan, uh, and accused God. For God has never sinned, but he's been accused of it. This woman you gave me, it's your fault, you gave me this woman. He was blaming God. He was using a wicked imagination, evil imagination, against God to try to justify his own position. So this goes all the way back. Can you see it if you read through the scriptures over and over and over? And why God said you have to have two or three actual witnesses to something before an accusation can even be brought up. And it tells the ministry not to even listen unless it's established in the mouth of at least two and preferably three witnesses. Now, I've goofed on that at times over the last 60 years when somebody's brought something to me and says, well, such and such happened and so and so did such and such. And you tend to believe them. And the Proverbs even say the first witness is believed until the second witness comes and presents their case. And in some cases, people still believe the first because they were first. But God says no. He won't even condemn the world until he sends out two witnesses to tell them what their sins are. God requires two literal witnesses to make any kind of judgment. And when you make evil imaginations in your mind, it is one person dreaming up what he thinks could be, and therefore must be, and he decides is sin. That's the way the human mind works. There is no room for that in Christianity. None whatsoever. And we do it, probably every one of us, from time to time, and some seem to dwell on it. But we all need to repent of any amount of it that we do. So, let's get back here. Don't oppress those, and let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. The inner part, the innermost part of your mind. And if you don't allow it there, then you're not going to repeating it, be repeating it to anybody else, are you? 
If you don't think it, you can't say it. Although sometimes I do think we speak without thinking. But there had to be some kind of thought for it to come out the mouth. So think. But think on what? Go to Philippians 4 8. That which is good and honest and true and uplifting. People will drag one word out of Philippians 4 8 and say, Well, this is true. And that's, I'm speaking of the truth here. No, they're twisting scripture. They're not using the spirit and attitude that is being shown in Philippians 4, verse 8. They're picking out one word and saying, well, what I'm speaking is true, and in some cases, evil can be true. But in 99% of the cases, most things that we imagine as evil are not. Now, what that person does that's evil and what they think that's evil is between them and God. But it's not for you to sit and daydream and nitpick each other. We just can't do that. So we're talking here true Christianity in Zechariah 7 of all places. We're not reading John 14, 16, and 17 where Christ is speaking to the disciples right after the Passover service and laying down proper thought and spirituality and doctrine. Yeah, we read that and say, well, that, yeah, that has to apply to us. Zechariah 7 does too. It's just earlier than that, but it is a prophecy of this end time and telling us what we need to do and what we need to don't do is what he's telling us right here. End time church. Basic Christianity. Why did Paul say in Hebrews, leaving the basics, let's go on to perfection. But if we're not keeping these basics of loving our neighbor and showing compassion and mercy and patience with them and not thinking evil of them, we haven't gotten to first base yet, much less on blank in our spiritual condition. You think you're righteous? You think you're spiritual? Okay, do you still imagine evil about different people? You're not past first base yet. You're not, you can't even see all the way if you're not the first base. So here he's telling us we're off base. And we've got to get on base. Very clear. But, verse 11, our forefathers refused to hearken and pulled away the shoulder and stopped their ears that they should not hear. And he warns us about that in Zechariah 1. And here he brings it up again. Don't pull away your ear. You know, I've been talking pretty frankly here, pretty strongly. And it's easy to pull your ear back and say, you're not going to tell me what to do, or I don't do that. I don't think with evil imaginations. I'm just a merciful, kind, wonderful, patient person. Well, we deceive ourselves so very often, brethren. And that's what we are, is deceitful and desperately wicked to the heart. And the only chance we have of righteousness is to come to have God's righteousness. His righteousness consists of the fruits of the Spirit, of patience and mercy and love. And those things 
not evil imaginations. I had someone tell me recently, I've never seen one fruit of the Spirit in you, and you'll probably be in the second resurrection because you're not converted at all. And that person has accused me of every sin that you can name. Specifically. And he has nothing but evil imaginations toward me continually. And yet he thinks he's the most righteous thing around. Tells me I shouldn't be preaching because he doesn't need a preacher and a man doesn't need a preacher. And now he's turning himself into a preacher and writing articles and preaching to everybody else. He doesn't need to be have a preacher. He just needs to be one. See how people turn things clear around? Totally around. Absolutely backward to Scripture and think that they are thinking righteously. It's just not true. The Bible makes it clear. We all need teachers. We all need shepherds. And there are a couple of references, yes, that are made about, well, I don't need a teacher. Yeah, taken in context and not twisted out of context and applied along with the others and say, you do need one. And I sent you ministers and elders and preachers. And Paul himself, who wrote those scriptures, preached. He preached to congregations. So it's so easy to see where people are way off track when they're trying to raise themselves up and pat themselves on the back and to say that they are some great thing like Simon Magus did or like Korah did. Moses needs help. God needs help because God can't direct Moses. Therefore, I need to take over. We have a long way to go and not deceive ourselves. And we can even sometimes think, well, I'm in the church. I'm in the right place. And we allow ourselves to have evil imaginations and not to give our brothers and sisters in Christ the compassion, the patience, and the mercy that they need. Now, we all need that because we all sin and come short of the glory of God. You know, I've had a lot of false accusation in my life, but I've had accusations were absolutely true, too. I won't deny that. I'm not perfect, never have been, and in this life I never will be. I'm working at it. And I need God's mercy and compassion, and I need your mercy and compassion. We all need God's mercy, and we all need each other's mercy and compassion and love. Now, if we can accomplish that, then we're loving God above everything and our neighbor as ourselves. You don't like it when people gossip about you. You wouldn't like it if you knew some of the dark thoughts they were thinking about you that they don't ever even say. You wouldn't like it. And you don't want them thinking those things about you, and you shouldn't be thinking those things about them. We all have to give each other opportunity. Yes, every one of us sins. Every one of us will say or do things we should not have said or done. Every one of us. And then is when we need mercy and compassion and prayer to God for our forgiveness and for 
tend to encourage us and teach us and help us. We are not each other's judge. God is our judge. And we need to give each other that opportunity for God to judge us. And he wants to judge us righteously. You know, he wants to give grace, unmerited pardon, to every one of us. He wants to give us his kingdom. He says, it is my good pleasure to give you my kingdom. So God is very willing, wants to show us mercy. We'll just give him a chance. And he wants us to do it with each other because he tells us very clearly, if you will forgive each other, I will forgive you. If you will show mercy to each other, I will show mercy to you. But if you will not forgive and show mercy to each other, I will not give it to you. That's as plain a statement as God makes anywhere. Very clear. Very straightforward. And if you think you can get into the kingdom of God without showing love and compassion and mercy and forgiveness to each other, you've got another thing coming. That's just the way it is. They refused to hearken and pulled away and stopped their ears and they, that they should not hear. Yes, they made their hearts as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law and the words which the eternal opposed have sent in his spirit by the former prophets. God's in his word by the prophets. But they didn't stone them. They do the same thing today. It hasn't changed. Therefore came a great wrath from the eternal of hosts. And it's come on the church of God here in the end as well. Because we did not have the respect for each other we ought to have. We didn't have respect for the prophets that we ought to have had. And sometimes we had too much um, of that. We gave Herbert Armstrong more credit then we gave God sometimes and put him first. So that was wrong, too. Got to listen, got to hear the message, but don't worship the man, worship God, and be thankful for the messenger. That's the right approach. So we've had the wrath come on us. Therefore, it has come to pass that as he cried and they would not hear, so they cried, and I would not hear, says the Eternal of hosts. But I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations. What he did with Israel. Took them by ships, as he said he would at the last verses of Deuteronomy 28. Whom they knew not. Thus the land was desolate after them, that no man passed through, nor returned, for they laid the pleasant land desolate. Nebuchadnezzar came in, destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, took the people captive, and we allowed Satan and this world and Protestantism to come in and take over the church and to destroy it. And even those who thought they were carrying on and going to recreate worldwide were powerless, as Isaiah 39 says. Hezekiah is a direct type of Herbert Armstrong, and God said that even though there was peace in his time, after he was killed, they began to destroy. And spiritual warfare began in earnest by the Takachis and those who followed them. 
So we've seen God's great wrath on the church and how it has been led into captivity of the world again. We have to come out of that and begin to serve God in the way that he wants to be served. And he, in this chapter, told us, again, love me, love each other. That sums up the whole thing. So there's nothing different throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, there's nothing any different than that. Everything that is written here, all these books, all these words, all have to do with that one thing. Love God more than anything, and love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. We all need to love our neighbors a whole lot more, because it is in our nature to love ourselves more than we love them. So, we're about out of time. I intended to get further and show some of the blessing God is going to make and to give. But we need to get this lesson first. So, I guess I spent more time on it and went back to Isaiah 58 so that we might get a better idea of why we do these fasts we've been doing and that they have to do with this modern-day church, of how Satan laid siege against it and the ministry, some of it, went along with it the church was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, its leader apparently was murdered, and these fasts are very, very personal for you and me. And the 70 years of us being in Babylon formally is over. And we are to be let out of there very soon now, because it was only a few years after that happened originally that those things began to truly occur. And God tells us here at the end that it won't be a long time, but it is come, it is come, it is short, it won't be long, it is come, it won't be like the echoing of the hills. But the destruction on the nation is coming soon after the 430 is up. So God gave us back 430 years, and we were in the captivity of Egypt, Israel. And now he gave us 400 years 30 years back in this nation and we have blown it and God is going to destroy it once again and it may even start this week I don't know that but if we start coming on a war level with Russia over the Ukraine it won't be long until it spreads and World War 3 is going to be here and if we think we've seen restriction and so on so far through COVID it's going to get a whole lot worse so brethren God tells us things are going to get bad in the nation the same way they have in the church and what you and I have experienced in the church on a spiritual level is utter devastation and utter devastation is now about to come on our nation and it's time for us to pray with all our hearts and to turn to God as much as we possibly can and pray that he forgive us, he show mercy on us, that he protect us through all this and grant us his grace and mercy to be able to help accomplish his end time work, which is the building of the spiritual, probably the physical temples and to rebuild Jerusalem physically in a place where it has been desolate for many generations 
And then the beast will come in, the church will flee to Zion, and he will defile the temple and Jerusalem and set up his government there for 42 months, times of the Gentiles, and then Christ will put an end to that. So there's a lot of, a lot of horror ahead of us on the physical level that we've already seen spiritually. And we need to be turning every stone to get spiritually in tune with God so that we might be afforded His love, His protection, His help, and the honor of helping do His end-time work.